I don't know. We'll see. We'll see over the summer. I'm not sure if it's going to stay like that or if it's going to be a starting role. I don't know. Whatever works best for the team, honestly. To me, who doesn't want to start and look cool? You are locked on fantasy basketball. Your daily podcast on fantasy basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast brought to you by Basketball Monster. And today's Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast is also brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Try it free at ziprecruiter.com slash L-O-F-B. My name is Josh Lloyd and as always you can find me on Twitter at redrock underscore b-ball, on Instagram at redrock underscore b-ball, and Patreon at patreon.com slash redrock underscore b-ball. and of course this show, as with most others, is streamed live over at Facebook at facebook.com slash Basketball. We are looking here at another team for the season in review series of podcasts. We're going to be talking about the New Orleans Pelicans today. So let's get to it. To it. Let's get to it indeed. The Pelicans are a team, obviously, with uh, quite a bit of intrigue after their, their mid-season trade. And yeah, quite a few questions, I guess, with them moving forward as we head into next season and beyond. We'll start by just having a bit of a look back at the team in general from, from last season. They finished, uh, 34 and 48, somewhat of a disappointing result. They had a, that chance to challenge for the eight seed once Cousins arrived. That never eventuated. Um, it was always going to be a stretch at that point, but they can never really get rolling. They showed a few good signs with those together. You can't say that it was a bad trade or anything like that, but uh, didn't get themselves into that eight-seed slot and ended up losing their draft pick to Sacramento as a result of that. Well, not as a result of that. They, they lost it because of the trade and then couldn't find themselves sneak into the top three to keep that pick. They underperformed their actual win-loss record by one win, so basically right on where they where they were expected to be. In the draft, not a lot of excitement for Pelicans fans, and that's pretty much par for the course for this team. They only have pick 40 in the draft. They have traded away so many first-round draft choices over the uh, years, and last year they finally had a, a top-six pick and ended up trading that for DeMarcus Cousins. They have very little young talent on this team. They've got high-end superstar talent, but they have very, very little young talent on this team, and that's not likely going to change this year with just that pick 40, which you can get a decent player uh, from it, but you're not going to get a star. You're not going to get, you might not even get a rotation player, but you might be able to get something that turns into a 10th man or something like that. So the cupboard is fairly bare when we look at the Pelicans um, for, for the coming season or for the coming seasons, in fact. They're free agents. Obviously, the biggest story here is Drew Holiday, who is an unrestricted free agent for the uh, New Orleans Pelicans. He is the biggest priority, one of the biggest priorities there is in all of free agency that's you know, not guaranteed to come back like Durant and Curry, which we know those guys are going to come back for the Warriors. Holiday's the biggest one. If he doesn't come back, they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, really, a really massive amount of trouble if he doesn't come back. Um, and they they would probably be looking at a... Yeah, easily a, a bottom 10 record, I would say, without Drew if he doesn't, because they don't really have much room to replace him, which is going to be a real problem. They also have Donatus Montiunis and Dante Cunningham, who are both unrestricted free agents. Cunningham declined his player option to become an unrestricted free agent. And then they've got three guys on non-guaranteed deals, Quinn Cook and Axel Tupan, who were signed very late in the season. This team used 26 players during the season, a lot of uh, sh- cycling in and shuffling of guys. I'm not sure whether Tupan and Cook get their deals guaranteed. I don't think they showed enough for us to get too excited about. Cook was okay. Tupan sort of been in and out of the league the last couple of seasons and showed a little bit, but... Who knows, depending, I guess, what they do in free agency. And the other one they've got on a non-guaranteed deal, which I'm almost certain will stick around, is Jordan Crawford, who had a really strong finish to the year. And with their lack of depth in the backcourt, you would uh, you would assume, or I would assume, fairly strongly that he will be back and they will guarantee that deal for next season. And he will be uh, a key rotational piece for them. They were 26th in offensive rating for the season and 9th in defensive rating. And that defense didn't really 
<clears throat> didn't really take too much of a hit when Cousins arrived, which you know, he, some of the criticism for DeMarcus Cousins is his defensive effort, but that wasn't the case when he arrived in New Orleans. He was fine. The offensive rating obviously, uh, needs to, needs to work or needs to be worked on. And some of that's due to the, to the absolute horrendous nature of players that were surrounding Holiday and Davis, guys like Cunningham and Solomon Hill and Etwan Moore and Buddy Heald, guys who just really did struggle offensively for that time that they were there in New Orleans. They were the eighth team in pace and actually fourth best in turnover percentage. So that that's helpful when you can increase the pace and actually keep the uh, keep the turnovers down. That that's a good thing. They just couldn't convert that into uh, into good offense. They led the team. They led the league. Sorry, in most defensive rebounds, but only thirteenth in defensive rebounding position. Uh, pos- Try again. Defensive rebounding percentage, which goes to show you that the uh, the pace is obviously a, a, a portion of that. And the fact that there was just so many more shots being taken against them that they could only grab the 13th highest percentage of available defensive rebounds, but that translated into the most defensive rebounds. So the other team was grabbing a lot of offensive boards against them as well. And in fact, for that team, the Pelicans on offense, they grabbed only the 29th most offensive rebound. So really uh, unaggressive in crashing the offensive glass. And some of that is by design, you know, to try and prevent transition stuff. And that's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but getting those second chance points can be key in, uh, in keeping a team afloat and helping boost an offensive rating. As we see, their one uh, needed a significant amount of boosting. If you look at the best offensive rating on the team, it goes to Dante Cunningham, Omar Ashik, comes in second. Yes, Omar Ashik, the guy that had Ebola for the second half of the season and was shithouse for the first half. He was uh, second in offensive rating. I don't think you need to be too too concerned about that. Tone Davis came in at number three and Jordy Crawford at number four. In terms of best defensive rating, um, Boogie, Davis, Alexia Jinsa and Shake Diallo were the uh, top four there. So four big men and a couple of guys that I do like um, Diallo and Ajinsa as backup big men, but obviously with the two blokes in front of them, their playing time and their opportunities are obviously going to be severely limited in future years. They only had one player that was that remained on the team after the the trade that went down and their players leaving. Um, that shot over forty percent on corner threes, and that was Cunningham. So they obviously need to improve that, and that's that goes a big way to improving that offensive rating as well. Jordy Crawford, at an amazing eighty-three percent at the rim, he shot. That is a crazy, crazy amount for a guy like Crawford, who is a gunner, and he also shot sixty percent from the field between three to sixteen feet. So mid-range jumpers, sixty percent. Those two numbers make me say, and you look at Crawford's numbers, and he was absolutely fantastic for this team, and he, he was so efficient, and you go. That's not going to be able to continue. He won't continue to shoot 83% at the rim. He won't continue to shoot 60% on mid-range jumpers. He's not going to be able to do that. Nobody is really able to do that. Um, so he's going to suffer a, a fall in efficiency for next season. So we can look at his numbers and be excited by them. And, and it's fair enough because he provided nice, nice stats and really good value for the deeper leagues. But you have to factor in a, a fairly high degree of drop off, I would think. From, uh, from that efficiency standpoint, which obviously impacts then his, uh, his scoring numbers and his, his overall fantasy value too. So just be, be aware of that. The discrepancy between Cousins and Davis on this team in terms of the percentage of their two pointers that were assisted was stark to me. Davis was assisted on 65% of his two point attempts, which is about common for a big man. You know, get it dumped into you, alley oops, passed in, you know, quick shot. Cousins, 30%. So we know that the style of DeMarcus Cousins is different offensively. He likes to handle the ball, dribble it around, back guys down, um, pound it a bit. And, but that's a massive difference between their two big men, 30% and 65% uh, assisted two-point percentage is, is a significant difference, and it does highlight the play style difference on offense between uh, between Cousins and Davis. Let's look at the uh, advanced stats leaders on this team. No surprise that Tone Davis led the team in PER, 27.5. And true shooting percentage, I think you'd be surprised that Quinn Cook led the team at 61.4. Then Dante Cunningham at 58.6. Cousins had the highest usage, 33.1. And Davis at 32.6. Cousins' usage came down from his time in Sacramento, understandably. 
Davis just smashed win shares 11, win shares per 48, he smashed it. Offensive box score plus minus Crawford, and a lot of that is to do with that high level of efficiency that he showed. Defensive box score plus minus Cousins, and he led the team in overall box score plus minus, while Davis led the team in VORP. I don't think there's many surprises really with any of those numbers there. They played just four lineups over 100 minutes for the season, and none of those lineups saw over 200 minutes. Elvin Gentry was constantly changing things and and making uh, poor decisions for a lot of the time, and that's uh, that's basically his coaching resume. Key strengths: poor decision making. Still gets still gets a job though. The most used lineup: Davis, Cunningham, Heald, Solomon Hill, Drew Holiday, plus ten point six. Really, really impressive. The problem is, is whatever was coming after that was disgusting. Ashik playing minutes. Um, I can't even think of the other crap on this. Tim Frazier, who had 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 his moments, but in reality, he's not good. You know, Wayne Selden playing minutes. Just random guys playing minute. Motta Yunus, who who I like, but really didn't show anything at all this season. So just a hodgepodge of garbage on the bench for this team for the majority of the season. Weirdly, though, their top 11 most used lineups were all positive. And that's they were the ones containing majority mix of starters. And then it was just disgusting. It just got terrible after that to, to lead this team to be as bad as they were. When your top 11 most used lineups were positive, everything else you're throwing out there must have just been horrendous. And that, that was exactly the case for the New Orleans Pelicans. Their best four-man lineup, Heald, Hill, Holiday, Triple H, with uh, Terry Jones, that was a plus 10.1, so impressive impressive there. And their, their most used uh, three-man lineup was Davis, Hill, and Holiday, and that was a positive 5.2. So uh, again, the, the upper end and what they're doing the majority of the time was a positive, just the massive, massive fall-off that they suffered was uh, too hard to, re- to recover from. The, um, the, the best three-man lineup, Cousins, Davis, and Solly Hill, um, so that, that's, that's, um, really encouraging that they're out of their top 20 most used three man lineups. The best one included both Cousins and Davis, and it was a solid plus 6.1. If we want to go even further to look at how Cousins, Davis, and Holiday performed as a three man unit, they were plus 5.7 in 671 minutes. And that is a huge, huge positive. Again, fixing what comes behind them is an issue and being able to stagger these guys. But the fact that those three guys, and we saw drop-offs, especially from Drew Holiday in a fantasy perspective when they played together, but the team was actually quite good with those guys on the court together. And that should give Pelicans fans a sense of hope that if Holiday does return, that they do have something that they can build on there. Their best two-man unit, Davis and uh, Davis and Cunningham was a plus 3.9, and their most used two-man was Davis and Hill at a plus three. And I think the, the two-man unit that everyone wants to see is how did Davis and Cousins do as a two-man unit? Well, they were a plus 4.4 in their 395 minutes. So again, there were concerns. How do these guys fit together? How does playing two bigs in the NBA work nowadays? They were fine in, again, limited sample size, but 400 minutes is not not that small, but plus 4.4 is is a, is a good start. And the way that they are both able to pass and stretch the floor and hit threes uh, on offense doesn't make them as stiff as what some other uh, big man combinations could become. They don't have any stash players in the pipeline, so nothing to really look at there for, um, for dynasty formats. Now's as good a time as any for me to tell you about today's sponsor. And today's sponsor is Zip Recruiter. It's the playoffs in the NBA, and having the right players on the court will be the key to success. That sharp outside shooter or powerful rebounder can be the difference between winning or losing a NBA playoff game. And your business is not any different to that. Your company needs the right people to be the best. So where do you go to find the top talent? There's no draft for accountants. There's no draft for pharmacists. You've got to go out there and find that person that fits your job or fits your business the best. You can't find the best candidates by posting your job on just one site. You need to post on all the top job sites. And now you can with Zip Recruiter. At ziprecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with one click. And then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your position. That's why ZipRecruiter is different to other sites. Unlike the other other sites, ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter gets a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No more juggling emails or fielding calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage the candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. You should find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes right across the nation. 
And right now, my listeners can start forming their own winning team on ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash L-O-F-B. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-O-F-B to enable you to try it for free and let the good folks at ZipRecruiter know that you came from listening to this podcast. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash L-O-F-B. Let's now get into these Pelicans dudes and start breaking them down in a more individual basis. We will start, of course, with the man, Tone Davis, who was, uh, I reckon, a key factor in many people winning their leagues this season, mainly for the fact that he were, you were able to get him at pick nine, pick 10, pick 11. Shit, there were people who said that they saw him go at the start of the second round, which was bonkers to me. I had him, I believe, as the fourth or fifth guy. I was pretty confident in his uh, ability to stay healthy. Don't ask me why. But there are guys where I just look at and go, you know what? I'm pretty confident. And the three guys that I was pretty confident with their injuries this year was Rubio, Bledsoe, and Davis. And it all came true. Maybe I'm a, a soothsayer for predicting health. I don't think that's the case at all. Maybe I got a little bit lucky, but yeah, you look, you got to look at the history of these injuries and why they happen and the nature of them and, and a lot of things about them to try and gather whether, um, this is actually a problem moving forward or or whether it's going to be a situation that they can overcome. And, and I was pretty confident with Davis. 75 games, 36 minutes a game, and he had a massive year. He was the sixth-ranked player in uh, head-to-head value for the season. In uh, head-to-head, so no, sixth-ranked player in, in eight-cat value. In my head-to-head ranks, he was the third-ranked player pre-All-Star and slipped a little bit when Cousins arrived to become the seventh-best guy. But still, he got 28-12 and 12 for the year, half a three, two assists, 1.3 steals, 2.2 blocks, 50 and 80, and 30% from three with a true shooting of 58%. How did he go when uh, when Cousins arrived? Well, he averaged 28.5 points, which is half a point more than before. He averaged 11.7 rebounds, which is 0.3 less. So basically the same. Two assists, 1.4 steals. And the only thing that really dipped was his block numbers down from 2.2 to 1.5. Um, still shot the same. Yeah, 51, 80, and 29, true shooting of 58. So the numbers basically the same, just with a slight drop in block numbers for Davis once, uh, once DeMarcus Cousins arrived. He has been spectacular as a fantasy player. His overall ranks for the past four seasons, sixth, third, eighth, and fifth. And we talk about his 2015-16 campaign as being a real disappointment. And I guess it was because he did see a number of his, uh, his stats drop and he only played the 61 games. But still, in per-game value, he was the eighth best player. In total value, he did slip to 23rd that season. But his other four seasons, his last four seasons in total value, including you know, total minutes and games played, ninth, fourth, 23rd, and ninth. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive stuff from Davis. In terms of looking at the, the top end of drafts for next season, he's going to be up there again, but people will be cautious. It takes three years for people to say someone's not injury prone. All you need to do is, is look at anything regarding Brook Lopez. Oh, he's injury prone. Injury prone. Hasn't been injured in three years, but he's injury prone. And, and maybe he does get injured again. Maybe anyone gets injured. Maybe I pull a hammy getting up from this table after recording the podcast. Who knows? But in terms of injury-prone labels and the fact that Davis had to miss you know, eight, nine games, you know, portions of eight or nine games this season, it really burns into people's heads, especially people that play DFS who constantly throw out, oh, never roasting Davis again, that's never happening, killed me, bum, soft. And you know that that just burns a fire inside me and it makes me so angry. Because again, Anthony Davis versus you, you'll get your ass kicked in less than a second. No doubt about that. Where do we where do we look at drafting him next season? I think you have to value him as close to a top five player. The problem is, is you've got Harden, you've got Westbrook, you've got Yarny, you've got Towns, you've got Durant, and of course you've got Davis and Curry. So that's a top seven that's pretty bloody good. And having any of those picks, the the differentiation maybe between say a Harden and a Westbrook, and maybe even not even Westbrook, depending on how you're building a team. Those guys, there's a gap. But those next five players, you could make an argument to take them anywhere, depending on how a lot of other things shake out and how you're looking to build a team and how you're most comfortable with structuring a side. Those five guys, Curry, Durant, shit, I even forgot Kawhi. Six guys, Curry, Durant, Kawhi, Yanni, Towns, and Davis. The value of those guys is so, so close. And 
Yes, it was a limited sample size that we saw Davis with Cousins, but those 22 games and Cousins played 17 of those, Davis averaged 28.5 and 11.5. Half a three, one and a half steals, one and a half blocks, and was the seventh ranked player in that time frame. Get him at pick seven. I'd be happy with it. If I had to, if I took him at pick five because I just really want him and I want an efficient big and Towns maybe went at four, I'd be happy doing that. And a lot of it again does, is going to come down to statistical and positional scarcity as well. And that's another part when you have those players ranked so closely. But, uh, but he was ridiculous. Uh, again, this season, he thoroughly deserved his all NBA team nomination. You know, smashed it in advanced stats, was was all over the place, led the team comfortably and on off at, at a positive 9.4, which is a, a huge, huge um, number. He's, he's just really good, and he's going to continue to be that player that he might not be inside the top five as a ranked player, might not get picked inside the top five, but he's a top five player. If that makes any sense, be, just because of the, the closeness in the value of so many of those guys in that zone, it, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be pretty, uh, pretty close. Um, pretty close. They're all going to be sort of thrown together in that one zone. I've got, uh, Bobby Madry throwing. He says, what do you think about Covington signing in New Orleans? Covington's not a free agent. So I think it's pretty much impossible. He is, uh, he's still got one more year in Philadelphia. Um, they've got, I think he's, he's, he's got a team option on him at like a million dollars. He's, uh, he's in Philadelphia. So I think it's impossible that he will sign in, uh, in New Orleans. He'd be awesome because he's awesome wherever he goes, but he is, uh, he is not a free agent. Unless I, unless I'm mistaken, Bobby, which I'm pretty sure that I'm not. Um, let's talk Boog. We can look at his overall season numbers, and they were okay. But that's uh, that's not what we're here to talk about because we don't care really what he did in Sacramento because things obviously changed. What did he do in New Orleans? Only played the 17 games, had a few injury issues, which has been par for the course for DeMarcus Cousins for uh, for quite a while. And you can talk about Davis's injury history. Cousins has played less games over the last three years than what Davis has. And a portion of that is bullshit injuries over the last you know, five games of a season where they say, you know what, he's just not playing anymore. And to be honest, some of that was was Davis uh, last season as well, that they just, not not that it was a bullshit injury, but they uh, that they shut him down a little bit earlier than what they would have necessarily done if they ha- had have been in playoff contention. But he played 72 games this year, Boogie, 65 the year before and 59 the year before that. So his injury concern is a problem. Or is it a problem? No, it, no. Let me rephrase that. It could be a problem. I don't really view it that way, though. Cousins, seventeen games in New Orleans, thirty-four minutes a game, twenty-four and a half points, over two threes a game, which is just mind-boggling. Twelve and a half boards, four assists, one and a half steals, one point three blocks. And you look at those numbers and you go, okay, shit. You know, three times more threes than what Davis hit. An extra rebound a game double the assist rate, more steals, very similar, slightly less blocks. But the reason that his value is so far down is his shooting percentages, 51 down to 45 as opposed to Davis compared to Cousins. Free throws from 80 down to 78, and 78 is still pretty good. Um, so that, that that causes his his value to have a significant dip, even though like post-All-Star, Davis was 7th, Cousins was 8th. So that, that's how close they were, and that's because of the efficiency. So if you're in a situation where you're punting efficiencies or punting field goal percentage, then Cousins' value rises significantly. In head-to-head value, he was 11th pre-All-Star. In my head-to-head, eight minus twos, he was 11th pre-All-Star, 12th post-All-Star. So maintained his value. And the usage, yes, that did shrink a little bit when he arrived in your lens as opposed to his time in Sacramento, understandably. But he was still able to put up monster monster numbers and he is going to be that guy that you look at at the back of the first round in that 10 through 15 zone and I'd be pretty happy with taking him in that Chris Paul LeBron John Wall uh sort of a sort of a um position I think that's where he's going to go after that group of eight blokes that I mentioned earlier you know Wall Paul and Cousins unless there's someone else off the top of my head that's uh, falling out of my brain um, they're the sort of guys that are going to go in that in that next setting of players, and I think that's totally fine. We, we do have yeah, small seventeen game small sample size for sure, but he was able to put up numbers that justified a you know, back end first, late or sorry, early second pick, and I think you'd be fairly comfortable with it. And it's not like the Pelicans are going to be you know, shutting things down from the start of the season and developing things. They need this is Cousins' last season. He is going to be an unrestricted free agent after next season. So he is going to push, they are going to push, and I think we'll see 
numbers that are pretty similar. I've got no reason to think that we uh, that we won't see numbers that uh, that do differ from that. But he did suffer a little bit of a drop off in his scoring, but everything else was uh, was pretty spot on. And hopefully that can mean, and it didn't it didn't last season, but hopefully it can mean we get a bit of a bump in the efficiency. Even if he takes that forty five percent shooting up to forty eight. That's an ability to jump one or two spots in the rankings, and uh, his three-point percentage for a big is is uh, superb, thirty-six percent last season from the uh, from the three-point line. Which, if you are carrying that in your leagues, and I am really probably ninety-five percent confident that I am going to be having three-point percentage in the Red Rock listener leagues this season, in place of turnovers as that ninth category, and taking out field goal percentage and replacing it with two-point percentages as a different way to do things. Because I am a massive, massive detractor of turnovers as a category. So I want to try something new and go with the three-point percentage and two-point percentage split instead of using turnovers. So Cousins' value as a center who shoots 38% or 36% or whatever he shoots from three uh, and on volume is uh, is obviously going to be quite valuable. The team was 1.8 points per 100 possessions better off with him uh, on the court, which is a which is a good sign. Clearly not as high as Davis's number, but still a, a pretty impressive thing. The next member of this team that we need to look at is Drew Holiday. A topsy-turvy season from Drew. Ended the season ranked 48th. Didn't start it on time after his wife Lauren had her brain tumor surgery after giving birth to their to their baby. He returned, I think, quicker than we anticipated. Initially, we were thinking January, and he came back uh, mid-December. And really, really got cracking in that January period. And he was, he was flying. He was a guy that I thought preseason before the injury news, or not the injury, the absence news came out that he has a real chance to be a top 20 player. And he played exactly like that through January and February. When Cousins arrived, it was, it was a, um, a dip in his performance, no doubt. 36th pre all star, 64th post. The other thing that affected him earlier on is Alvin Gentry's general level of incompetence and confusing comments and statements about Gentry. When he came back from, not an injury, came back from a family-related absence, yes, which caused him to miss camp, and maybe he couldn't stay in as good a shape as what he would like to, although he was in pretty good shape. And Gentry continued to use Holiday off the bench. And the reasoning that Gentry gave for that is that if Drew plays off the bench, I'm able to give him more minutes. Alvin, that's not how maths works. That's not how common sense works. That's not how good coaching works. Eventually, Drew moved back into the starting lineup and went on a, a pretty significant tear at one point where he was putting up numbers that were, were honestly, that they were, they were brilliant. He had this stretch through, um, through January, February, where there's a game here, 33, 6 and 10, 23, 4 and 11, 26, 4 and 11, 32 and 3 with, uh, a Richie Benno as well, 23, 3 and 11, 13, 10 and 8, 39 and 7, 15, 6, 2, 26, 6 and 12, 16, 6, 11 with 10 steals in those last two games combined. Absolutely crushing it. <clears throat> and then Boogie came and part of the reason that it did impact when Cousins arrived was not a lack of usage. It was just for some reason the shots didn't fall. He he came in like with games of one of nine shooting, three of nine, five of seventeen, three of twelve. Just shit that you went. Okay, well he should be look getting easier looks now, but for some reason they're not falling. So I'm not completely out on Drew being um losing a ton of value with Cousins around. He shot forty three percent post All Star, forty five percent pre All Star. I think that you know, some of that shooting percentage is you can be recovered. I don't see, and some of that's an unfamiliarity with playing with Cousins, but I can see that recovering. He averaged in those games post All-Star 14 points, one and a half threes, three and a half boards, seven assists, one and a half steals, and an impressive 8.8 blocks on 43 and 76. And his free throw percentage for the year was one of those, uh, one of those weird things that for some reason could never get high. He was only 71% for the entirety of the season when he is normally and consistently been a, a very good three uh, free throw shooter. 81, 86, 84, the three previous seasons. This year, 71. And that cost, that cost him from being an overall player who was a, a top 25 guy, despite the uh, numerous things that did set him back this season. So assuming that Drew returns to New Orleans, I think that he is comfortably a top 50 player. 
I think that he is a guy that we will see that efficiency rise again. I don't think that he will have a true shooting of 51 post-All-Star. I don't think he'll have 51 again true shooting, which is what he had post-All-Star. I think that will improve those anomalous games of poor, you know, one of nines and five of 17s, like these bullshit, why can't he hit a single shot with Cousins around? That will change. The assist numbers yeah, stayed fairly strong. He averaged seven assists post-All-Star. He averaged 7.3 um, for the season, you know, pretty much the same. His steal numbers, his block numbers, his rebound numbers, like nothing else really changed apart from the fact that his shot didn't go in. And I think that that will be able to be corrected. And while I wouldn't go for him necessarily in the top 20, if he is back in your lens and you would have to, I would assume that he will be, but can't be guaranteed of that. If he is back in your lens, then to me, he is a, a pretty comfortable top 40 player, in my opinion. I'd be happy doing that just because you're paying that premium for point guards unless you're, uh, unless you're punting assist. And that does, uh, that does take a little bit of the shine off what Holiday can do. But I am, I am feeling pretty confident in him and Cousins and Davis being able to work out. And if he goes to another team, I believe in Holiday's talent. I believe that he can still become that guy, but the reliance that the Pelicans are going to have to have on Cousins, Holiday, and Davis is going to be massive, and depending on where else he goes, maybe that reliance isn't going to be quite as large as that, and that might knock him down a bit, but I can't really see myself ever letting Drew slide outside the top 50. He is one of my favorite players in the NBA, and I do think he does get underrated, especially uh, his ability defensively. It, it can be quite uh, can be quite important for for a team for any team that uh, that that has him on the team. Of course, lots of me uh, saying the word team there. Solomon Hill. Um, actually, before we get onto that. Matthew Barrett Day, he says, I like offensive rebounds as a category. It secures another possession for the team, so it's similar to turnovers in value, and it's similar in numbers for players. Not quite the same totals over a week, but it's close. That that doesn't impact me whatsoever, the the totals for a week, where the turnovers, offensive rebounds are the same. I have absolutely no, um, no, that doesn't impact me at all. The reason that, Matthew, the reason that I'm looking at going with three-point percentage is because turnovers is a negative category. Obviously, so it, it does give that bonus. Maybe if you're a little bit down in games played for the week, gives you some way to be able to salvage something. Adding offensive rebounds is another bulk stat, so it, it does favor the game's volume more, whereas three-point percentage obviously is a rate statistic, so you can win that category while playing less games and significantly fewer games. Now, while I hate turnovers as being a negative, I understand the value of being able to have those things that aren't pure counting stats, and that's why I'd look to add that extra percentage in there just because it does enable, I guess, a little a little level of leveling the playing field between a team who might have three, four extra games for the week and uh, a team that plays fewer rather than, rather than it being something that penalizes the good players. It's an extra strategic element in there that you can um, be competitive in situations where you might be disadvantaged by games played. So that's the that's the way that I look at that. Um, Solomon Hill, yeah, um, had a good postseason run in Indiana the year before. They obviously couldn't re-sign him because they foolishly declined his uh, fourth-year rookie option, so they couldn't re-sign him. He came to New Orleans on a four-year, $44 million deal, which in hindsight probably doesn't look great. It's all it's not terrible, but he was not a great fantasy player. But in saying that, he was still the 144th-ranked player, and that is not a terrible position for him to be in. The team was actually 6.3 points per 100 possessions better with him on the court versus him on the bench, which was second on the team behind Davis, and Holiday came in third at a positive 5.6. So he was important with what he did defensively. It's just that fantasy-wise, he doesn't do much. And the difference between what he does from an overall rotisserie point of view, where he was 144th, my head-to-head ranks had him 215th pre and 185th post because he just offers nothing in a big positive. He's just like you know, seven points. 1.23s, 3.8 boards, 2 assists, 0.9 steals, half a block. These are just all numbers that sit marginally below average. Nothing being a huge negative, or the point is a, is, a, is not a great thing, and 38% from the field is also not great. Minimal attempts, though. 81 from the line. Nice, but such limited volume that it's just all these numbers are just, there's no bright greens, there's no bright reds. It's all just very 
pale greens and pale reds across the entirety of a statistical set as you look at the the values and that that we have over on Basketball Monster. So to me, as a head-to-head guy, he offers nothing. He's not a categorical specialist. He's not helping you in any areas. He's just not a guy that I would consider even in probably 16-team head-to-head leagues. In rotisserie, it is a little bit different. So if I'm talking a 16-team roto, I would like him because he's not giving me massive negatives. He's just providing some solid-ish type of numbers across the board in most areas. And with this team's limited ability to bring in any new talent next season, his role is going to have to remain pretty similar. Now, will they continue to start him at the three? For next season, I would have to assume so. Dante Cunningham, as I said, has opted out. Whether they bring him back or not, he was the other guy that they used in that position. Solomon Hill is a way better player than Dante Cunningham. Not as good offensively, but he is a, he is a better player. So I think that Hill, you got the 30 minutes game this season. And getting that again, I think is a relatively high or relatively high possibility. But it's not going to mean much for fantasy. Don't expect him to vault himself into the top 100 um, as a fantasy rank guy. He's he's didn't like he had, it wasn't like he had a massive down year from three or anything. He shot 35% near true shooting of 53. That's sort of about where he is uh, as a player. So I wouldn't be expecting uh, wouldn't be expecting too much more from Big Solly Hill. Eats one more, a guy that um, had a pretty decent year in Chicago the year before, shot 40% or 45% from three, I believe. And uh, took his talents to New Orleans. I, st- I wish the, sh- the Bulls had have re-signed him. He wasn't fantastic in New Orleans. I also didn't like the way that Gentry used him, which is something I could say for nearly all players. I thought they should have been giving giving him um, much larger role ahead of guys like a Tim Frazier, who I'm not a massive fan of as a player, but more was at times um, shunted behind Frazier, um, yeah, limited minutes behind guys like Heald, who struggled for big portions of the year and ended up playing just 25 minutes a game in 73 games. He did average 9.6 points, 1.13s, yeah, two assists, two boards, 0.7 steals, half a block on 46, 77, and 37%. So solid true shooting at 54, yeah, decent-ish sort of numbers. But from a fantasy point of view, that made him the 171st ranked player. And much like Solomon Hill, he's just providing little bits of nothing in all categories and nothing standing out to make him a good fantasy head-to-head target. 197th pre-All-Star, 234th post-All-Star. So he's, um, his numbers for head-to-head leagues, there's not a lot there to love. Now, I think that there is a significant chance, and I think that he should, again, depending on what happens in free agency without they are somewhat limited by their cap space. Uh, he should start next season as the starting shooting guard, and I would hope that that enables him to play... Um, some some pretty decent minutes. Now he didn't start down the stretch uh, of last season. He started uh, he started one game, but had a few or quite a few double digit scoring games on some high efficiency. Once Cousins arrived, and he was able to play with that team. That's the way that I think that they should be looking is to uh, is to start him down that stretch. Although they do have Jordan Crawford there, I would look to start more over Crawford and use uh, use Crawford in that bench role. And they started Timmy Frazier at times, which was uh, which was poor. They started. Um, useless players like Hollis Thompson, Reggie Williams, Wayne Selden, um, guys that should have been getting nowhere near starting lineups. I, I would like them to to run that more lineup a little bit more and play him a, a few more minutes, and that might increase his value somewhat. But it's not. It's going to be as a three point efficiency specialist, maybe uh, a guy that if you are including that three point percentage category, that you can use him there. Um, and you know. Chuck in a sneaky couple of assists, maybe two and a half assists, maybe one and a half threes, but that's going to be 16, maybe, or probably 18 team league valuable, and that's about it. This team's value drops off significantly after we talk about those top three guys. Let's talk Timmy Frazier, who was the, um, I guess, the toast of the town for big chunks of the season when Drew Holiday was out, absolutely crushing it at the start of the year. He's one of those guys that I put into the Tony Roten category. In the, when the minutes are there, the stats are going to come. Like there is, he's going to rack up the stats. The problem is, is he is not good. It, I don't know, I know Matt Smith is like the biggest Tim Frazier fan out there and he loves Tim and we disagree on his overall level of ability. I don't think Tim Frazier is good. I don't think Tim Frazier is a starting caliber player for any team in the NBA. Um, playing him at the two or alongside Drew Holiday was a big mistake. He is fine as a backup that plays 16, 17 minutes a game, and that's okay. But even then, I think if you're a good team looking to push to a top four seed, he can't be a backup point guard on a team. 
But as I did mention, when he plays, the stats will come, and there is no doubt about that. He played 24 minutes a game and averaged just seven points, but half a three, five assists, 0.9 steals, two and a half rebounds. That's where the value comes, is in those assist numbers. He did only shoot 40% from the field, 31% from three, and 76 from the line for a true shooting of 51, which is obviously not very good at all. But he had games at the start of the year where he was he was killing it. Yeah, his first two games for the year, 15, 5, and 11 with four steals, 21, 6, and 10. And then the fourth game, 23, and 9 with four steals and a block. These are absolutely bonkers numbers. He had a triple-double of 14, 11, and 11 with five steals, where I believe he was the monstrous line of the night that day. And then not more than a month after that, he went through a stretch of three games of uh, scoreless and five games of DMPCDs prior to that. Over the last um, two months of this, or post-All-Star break, he scored in double digits just twice. 14-point game um, against the Rockets and an 11-point game against the Nuggets. Didn't have a double-digit assist game, but played probably more minutes than what he should have down that stretch. And you know, these games where he's playing 36 minutes and 28 minutes and 31 minutes, I would have much preferred those minutes to go to Crawford and to go to eat one more. But Gentry, once again, in his infinite negative wisdom, he was uh, playing Frazier and Holiday together. As a source of assists, Frazier can be a, a really valuable guy. He was 150th in my head-to-head ranks before the All-Star break in large part because of that extra assist value he got when Holiday was out. Post-All-Star, 315th. And that, that to me, is a more realistic illustration of what he is as a player. He was a negative 1.3 for the year in terms of on-off numbers. Um, he's probably going to be the backup point guard again this year, so that does bring him into that consideration for, say, 16-team leagues. But is he going to be the guy that gets five minutes a game? Is he going to be the guy that gets 25 minutes a game? I think he's probably going to be closer to the 20, 18 to 20 minute mark, which could easily get him four and a half assists with a steal a game and half a three. And that has value in its own right. But you get no points, you get poor efficiency, and you're going to get streaky performances. And that should relegate him to the really deeper leagues. Now, if Drew leaves and they can't bring in another point guard and they're forced to go with Tim Frazier, well, then... Shit, they're going to be terrible, but the numbers are going to fly, and he will be a top 100 guy. If for some reason he is playing 30 minutes a game, he will be a top 100 guy. You can write that down, and in that, I agree with Matt Smith that he is an awesome fantasy asset. His ability to bring big assists, hit some threes, get some steals, if those minutes come, but that is uh, an absolutely terrible option if you're the Pelicans to run with Timmy Frazier as a uh, as a starting point guard on a team that's that's looking to do something positive, and I'm not sure that uh, that Tim is that guy to actually do anything positive with the team. Dante Cunningham, 66 games, 25 minutes a game for Dante, 6.6 points, 1.1 threes, four boards, half a steal, half a block, 48 and 59 is his percentages, but that translated into a 59% true shooting, which is obviously good, and he hit 39% from three, something which um, Cunningham was never a three-point shooter really in his past Last couple of seasons, he started to develop that, and that was key for him to be able to get on the court. And we saw how much Gentry loved him. He played him at the four alongside Davis in those small lineups a lot, which was uh, which was good, and that, that worked pretty well. But obviously, the addition of Cousins is going to limit those roles where Hill and Cunningham play at the four. It will still happen at some times when they uh, split Cousins and Davis up. You'll get Hill and Cunningham, if he returns, of course, playing that role alongside uh, Cousins and Hill. If Dante goes somewhere else, I just don't see anywhere where he's going to be able to get 25 minutes a game. He's not that good. Gentry had an unnatural obsession with his talent or whatever that was that he was displaying on a, on a game-by-game basis. He's just is a guy that's gritty. He, he hates saying that word, but, but he hustles a lot. He's a, he's a um, rebounder that gets down and dirty. He provides good defense and he can hit some threes. And that is useful in the NBA. It's not all that useful for us in fantasy, and for him to find 25 minutes a game somewhere else, I'm not sure that's going to be all that easy. The team was a 2.4 positive with him on the court, so that's obviously a good thing. And we talked about how all their high usage or high minutes lineups were positives, and he was a part of those. The problem is, is the absolute crud that they run out for the majority of the other lineups that, that did cost them their problems. But for him to uh, crack a top 200 rank for next year, I reckon is going to be somewhat of a struggle. After that, we go down to the real dregs of things. We've got Donatus. No, we don't. Let's go to Alexia Jinsa first, who played only 39 games, 15 minutes a game, 
5.3 points, 4.5 rebounds, half a steal, 0.6 blocks, 50 and 73, and um, a 53% true shooting. Now, I like Alexi Ajinsa. I think that, or not I think, much like Tim Frazier, when he gets big minutes, he is a must-own fantasy player. The problem, the problem is, is that he is a long way from, from getting those consistent minutes. He was out of the rotation for long periods of time with this team. And for a team that started Omar Ashik for chunks of time, that was a horrendous coaching decision. Ajinsa might not be great, but I can 100% guarantee you that he is better than Omar Ashik. And the fact that he played just 39 games was, uh, was a disappointment and probably an embarrassment in terms of coaching performances from Gentry. Minus 3.4 with his on-off, so the team wasn't great with him on the court, but we know that when he plays, the fantasy stats will come. The problem, the problem is, is how is he going to play? How is he going to get enough minutes to be a, a useful guy? I think he's got a real chance to crack the top 300, which is not saying much, but that can be useful for the deeper league guys. But my level of hope of him ever forming himself into a competent NBA starter has uh, dwindled and pretty much completely evaporated. I still don't think he's used 100% correctly in New Orleans. I'd like to see him tried somewhere else, but it's uh, there's not not much to get too, uh, too pumped about with uh, Alexia Jinsa. Jordy Crawford. Really interesting um, signing for this team. He played 19 games after the All-Star break and was the 132nd ranked player in that time frame. And that's obviously super impressive. 23 minutes a game, 14 points, two threes, three assists, which was something I was really, really impressed with with Crawford with his ability to pass and distribute and make plays for others. 0.6 steals. But as I referenced earlier, 48% from three, fueled by that 60% mid-range shooting and 80% at the rim, which are numbers that will not continue. He shot 39% from three, and that's fine. You can totally see him doing that. I believe they'll guarantee his contract and bring him back and have him play either that starting role or the, the backup guy behind each one more or whatever else they do in that position. And you know, that, that number where he was the 132nd ranked player in just 23 minutes a game, those minutes are realistic. That's a realistic target for Jordan Crawford next season. That efficiency is not, which to me then would bump his value down. It would take him from being a positive field goal percentage guy to a negative. It would drop his points down as well, maybe instead of 14 a game, which I cannot say that being able to be be maintained. Maybe he gets 12 a game, and that takes his value down in that category as well. The assists, I believe that he, he could actually keep up two and a half assists a game in 23 minutes. Oh, I don't think that was too fluky. I think he has improved his game to that degree, and he wasn't just a crazy gunner, which is you know, part of the criticisms that Crawford had throughout his um early uh, stints in the NBA. The team was 3.2 points per 100 possessions, better off with him on the court. And I would be stunned if he is not a rotation. Actually, that's not true because uh, Elvin Gentry is the coach. I would be stunned if a competent coach didn't play him in the rotation and play him 20-plus minutes and, uh, and get him in that role because they do need offense. We talked about that earlier, how much their offensive uh, their offense struggled. But he is going to be a key part of that. I can't see that not being the case. And... You know, 16 team leagues, you, I think you want to be on him. 14 team leagues, you might, you might want to have a, a crack at it, but that field goal percentage is a really, really, um, yeah, key indicator of regression. So don't be surprised if that is not able to stick because those, you know, shooting splits are just not, they're not able to continue. He won't be able to continue that over the course of the season, and that will cause an overall drop from maybe 130th in those 23 minutes. Maybe he's 160th because small drops in that range causes massive drops in terms of rank, um, as I've highlighted all the time, that the difference between the guys 100 and 150 or 60 and 100, they're so minimal that even a tiny, tiny dip causes guys to tumble three, four, five, six rounds. And yeah, seeing Crawford as 180th in 23 minutes next year, you wouldn't be surprised because he shot 45% from the field and that'd almost be enough to dip those numbers down if everything else stayed the same. Let's talk Donatus Montiunis. We know the complete, um, how should I say it, clusterfuck that happened with his uh, free agency with um, him not signing a contract with Houston and then being traded to, or sorry, then signing a deal with Brooklyn and Houston matching the offer and then him failing a physical, then he couldn't go back to Brooklyn with, uh, honestly, BJ Armstrong just screwed everything up. 
And then Houston cut him, arbitration, suing. It was just a complete nightmare. Armstrong played it as poorly as any agent could. I didn't understand the whole posturing over this stuff. Then he went to New Orleans and was bad. He wasn't he wasn't good. And I'm a, I'm a fan of Martinez. Now, he has had ongoing back problems that nullified that trade to Detroit last season. He played 34 games, 14 minutes, four and a half points, three boards. Defensive stuff, it's never going to be his strong suit. Half a steal, 0.3 blocks, hit 0.33s, and was terribly inefficient with a true shooting of 47%. Does he come back next season? Who knows? He's an unrestricted free agent. I don't imagine the market is pretty hot for Monte Yunus. We saw that that was the case when he was in restricted free agency, that no one was signing him to any deals. He didn't do enough in your lens. It made me think everyone's going to go, oh, cool, let's get back on to Donatus. He was a team worst, negative 10.2 with his on-off numbers. If we don't include Sheikh Diallo, who was a negative 10.3 and played, you know, obviously far fewer minutes and far fewer um, games than what Monte Yunus did. He was just bad. And at this point, Maybe he can rehabilitate himself if his back is able to hold up into being a backup big man, but he needs 30 minutes to be even close to fantasy relevant, and that's just not going to happen anywhere. So don't have any, uh, don't have any high hopes for big uh, Donatus. Speaking of not having high hopes, Omar Ashik, 16 minutes a game, 31 games, 2.7 points, but what he is is a very strong rebounder. 5.2 boards in those 16 minutes, which is obviously over 10 boards per 36. He doesn't block shots as much as what people might think that he does. 0.4 blocks in 16 minutes is horrible. 47% from the field is horrible for a guy that doesn't take any jump shots. 59% from the line is also horrible. He is just a bad, bad player. And my thoughts do go out to him for that illness that caused him to lose so much weight over that course of the season. Um, Really, really a bad situation that had him out for a very long time. But he is bad and there is no escaping that. There is no situation that I would want to own Omar Ashik in dynasty formats, in seasonal stuff, unless for some reason Ajinsa, Cousins, Davis, Diallo all go down and Ashik comes in. But the problem is, again, is Gentry played him when he didn't need to play him. He didn't, he was terrible. He, what, what positiveness did Omar Ashik provide? The team was worse off with him on the court, minus 3.2 points. Yeah, that's, he was bad, and he is not getting any better. That contract is disgusting. The Pelicans can't afford to attach assets to it to get rid of him. He is going to be stuck there, and he should be a DMPCD in pretty much every game. Let's talk Sheikh Diallo, who I am a big fan of. I um I think that he has got a uh, a solid future in the NBA, and he is a player who he's 20 years of age, but he is a guy that has a really good fantasy game, not like Omar Ashik. He has got the ability to put up fantasy numbers. And we saw that down the end of the season where he did start to play some some games and we saw some pretty big numbers from him. And that's what you could expect if he found himself in a big role. Again, Cousins and Davis, the big role's not coming. It's a, it's a long way away. Now, maybe if one of those guys gets hurt and he has to come in and play, um, yeah, bigger minutes. I don't think that that's um, I don't think that that's too much of a of a um, I wasn't going to say too much of a of a stretch to think that he would be able to uh to do that because he is he is quite good in the D League. He averaged two point four blocks in his twenty eight minutes. He's been a very good shot blocker throughout his college career. The last two games of the year. The last three games of the year, he played 26, 27, and 29 minutes. The first game there, 7 and 9. The next game, 19 and 11 with two blocks. The next game, 12 and 16 with a steal and a block. That's the potential that Sheikh Diallo has. So to me, he is a very much a long-term investment in Dynasty Leagues. Now, whether his value ever um, comes in your lens, whether it comes in another team, or whether what happens with Cousins? Does he get traded this year? That's a possibility. Does Cousins leave in free agency? Diallo is a long-term investment. But I think that he is clearly their best young player on this team. There's no debate about that. I was stunned that he went as late as he did. He looked good in Summer League, and I thought he looked good in the, in the stretches that he played here for New Orleans. And I'm expecting him to find himself in a bigger role, take over the Omar Ashik minutes, take over the Donatus Matayunas minutes, maybe even take over the Alexia Jensen minutes, and we'll see, instead of him playing 12 minutes a game in 17 games, that he plays 60, 70 games and plays 15 minutes a game. And that starts to have an impact in 30-team leagues. And it might even start to have an impact in 20-team leagues. That might be a stretch given he was barely inside the top 400 this year. But a jump to inside the top 300, I don't think that's too far to stretch. And he is a low-risk, low-cost 
dynasty value play if your league is going deep enough. Now, if you're in a 12-man league with 15-man rosters, then holding on Diallo is probably not going to be the greatest idea. But if you roster, if your league has 250 players rostered, I wouldn't hate uh, I wouldn't hate having Diallo as one of my guys there and thinking, you know what, this guy could, if things break right, have a couple of top 100 seasons under his belt. I do believe in him that much. I think he's uh, going to be a real interesting target or interesting player to watch develop. The situation is not ideal for him, but I am real interested to see how things happen for him. He put together some good defensive stuff, good defensive numbers, and I am uh, I am really intrigued to see where uh, Sheikh Diallo can go moving forward. The last two players on this team, Quinn Cook, played 14 games, 13 minutes a game, five and a half points, two assists, 1.83s. Maybe he comes on as and stays on as a third point guard, plays some backup two as well. Um, shot 51%, which is obviously very high, 42% from three for a true shooting of 59. Unrealistic to expect that level of shooting to continue for Cook for the season. Still found himself outside the top 400 for the year. Nothing super spectacular about him. The team was 8.3 points better off with him sitting on the bench versus him on the court. So again, nothing uh, super spectacular for Quinn Cook, but this is a real, you know, 400 deep leagues. Would want to make sure Quinn Cook is owned, but I don't have very high hopes for him at all. Well, Axel Tupan, I, I don't think he'll be back for next year. He played 12 minutes in four games and didn't, didn't do much. Didn't do much in his time in Denver. He's a decent wing defender, but um, I don't think we're at the stage where we need to have high hopes for um, high hopes for Axel Tupan at the age of 24. Although he, again, he does provide decent defense, so you'll see him catch on with some team. Whether that that may be even back in New Orleans, but I think his skill set is duplicative of say Solomon Hill as well, and he's just a worse version of that. So I don't think they necessarily want that same guy to come in and, and be their 14th or 15th guy. But I could see him on a roster. I just can't see him being a any sort of an impactful player. Let's have a look at the questions that you guys have asked. Ben Almunia Clark. Does any player have their team over a barrel more than Drew has the Pelicans? No. He's uh they are in massive, massive strife if he doesn't uh he doesn't re-sign. They have to give if he comes in and says, I want five year max, they have to say, Cool. Or else they are in a lot of trouble. And then they likely lose cousins and they might even get Davis demanding trades. They are in big trouble. They need Drew back. Unless he's just like, I don't care what you dickheads offer me, I'm not coming back, then he is getting a max deal. There's almost no doubt about that. He they will have to offer him they have to. They just have to bring him back. Wong Fu, the Pelicans. The best name for an NBA team ever. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's um especially when you look at it and the names announced and they go. Pelicans, how menacing is that? It's just a bird, and then they and then they bring out and then they bring out that mascot that they had, and it was the most frightening looking thing you've ever seen. Just that um, that combination of oh, what kind of a soft nickname is this, and then that and whatever that was that they brought out, uh, Pierre the Pelican was horrendous. Um, top. Top five all-time NBA mascot, Pierre the Pelican, or the, the original version 1.0. The new one, a little bit softer and cuddlier, but he was uh, he was a nightmare. That guy loved him. Bobby uh, Madry, he says, would you overpay for Gay or Covington? If you're New Orleans, well, we covered the Covington thing already. Bobby, would you overpay for Gay? The problem here is, Bob, is they don't have the cap space to do it. If they renounce their cap holds on Cunningham, which is 3.9 million, Monty Yunus at 1.5, and Drew Holiday at 16.9, which would be an absolute disaster if they did that, then they're, um, they would have $89 million in, in cap, or in, 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 uh, in, in caps, in caps. What am I talking about? 20, they would have $89 million in contracts on the books. The salary cap's going to be about $101 million. So they, they will have $11.7 million. And that is not going to be enough for Rudy Gay. They would have to then trade away guys. And what positive assets do they have to trade away? None. Solomon Hill is, are you getting, trading him away uh, without attaching an asset to it? Unlikely. They don't have players as assets. Are they going further into their future draft picks to do that? I'm not sure. Alexia Jinsa, he's not a positive asset. What can you clear out there? He's worth five million. Ashik's worth 11 million. Maybe if for some reason you could trade Ashik out, that's 11 million. That puts it on to that 11.7. You got 22 million. Maybe is that enough for Gay? But even then, you don't have a point guard. So I cannot see how that they can, uh, how they can do that. Um, again, with, with that cap hold, with all those cap holds on, they are at $111 million. So they, they can't sign. They can't sign a guy like Rudy Gay in that circumstance. And renouncing Drew only gives them that 
you know, eleven point seven million, which is why I say it's such a disaster for them if Holiday does not sign because uh, they can't do anything anyway in that space because they've got just these bad contracts like Hill at eleven point seven, which is not bad in the scheme of things, but given the, the structure of this team, it is eight and a half for Eton Moore, ten and a half for Ashik, five for Ajinsa. They got whatever this bullshit is with Quincy Pondexter who hasn't played in seventeen years. He's on the books for three point eight. Maybe they can get rid of him with injury exceptions. Or I'm not sure about that. Um, so they don't have really much flexibility to be able to go out and get someone like a Rudy Gay, unfortunately. But if it worked, like if they had that magical cap space, which they don't, then then I could see I could see Gay being a guy that they, they could use. Cousins and Gay actually do work well together. And that might be what they need to do to push and I think if they had Gay they would put if if his Achilles is fine, which is a big deal. And then would you be happy spending twenty million dollars for three years for Rudy Gay coming off Achilles surgery when people don't ever recover from it? especially at the age of 30, I'm not sure I would. So, yeah, it's a situation that's not, not going to happen, and I'd be hesitant even if it could happen. Jordan says, aside from Brow, Boogie, and Drew, if he's back, who could have top 100 value on the Pelicans? The answer is no one. The answer of the person who gets closest is maybe Etwan Moore, if he played 30 minutes a night. But I don't have full confidence in him doing that, and his value is going to be maybe three assists, two threes, okay efficiency and okay scoring. Jordan Crawford, he's not going to get enough minutes. Um, Solomon Hill's never going to get there. It's going to be Boogie. It's going to be um, Davis. It's going to be Holiday as top 50 guys, Davis and Cousins as top 12 guys, and it's going to be no one else. And I, I can't really see much change from that, and I cannot see any other Pelicans guy really even sniffing that top 100. Top 150, yeah, I think you see more in that in that range, but uh, maybe Hill, but even that's a, a stretch. And uh that's about it, I reckon, uh, for that one, Jordan. I can't, I cannot see uh, much changing with that. All right, we are done for this Pelicans podcast. I am going to be doing a second podcast today, which uh, I'll get started in probably half an hour, an hour's time. We'll be doing the Charlotte Hornets, and uh, getting those two done today enables me to uh, be able to slot in a couple of NBA draft podcasts. We're going to have one next week which um, will be middle of next week and then one the week after, middle of the week after uh, as we head into the NBA draft. Maybe we'll sneak a third in that week before the draft, but that's uh, that's the way we're doing it. So we're having two today so we can uh, sneak all those pods in and get them done before the NBA draft. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. It's a great way of helping out the show. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya. Each one more. Hi, you've reached the high fashion hotline. Hi, my family's going to a tailgate and I want our style to stand out from the crowd. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's got all the latest fall styles. Plus, during Old Navy's colossal sale, you'll save up to 50% off store-wide. Did you say up to 50% off? I did, so don't sit on the sidelines. Old Navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks, stylish dresses from 15 bucks, and comfy tees for the family from just 6 bucks. Right now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're cheering for Old Navy. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 10-2 to 10-10. Select styles only.